That was fun. Good to see y'all. Welcome to Rimrock. One thing I got to tell you is we do have a, our semi-annual meeting after this. And so uh, we invite you to join us. We're going to meet right kind of down the hall there. And um, I'm sure there'll still be donuts left if you, uh, if you need that. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a fun time for us just kind of to, to talk about what's going on at Rimrock, where we're going, some uh, testimonies, see what God has done. And so we invite you to join us uh, right after the service. You know, uh, Rimrock is, is kind of known as the Grace Church. And, and uh, for me, um, that, that's just an incredible affirmation and blessing to hear that every time. Uh, for some people, it's maybe, uh, but the truth is we're not easy on sin at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, God's grace does not lead to sin, but to Jesus Christ. That's what's cool about his grace. Uh, he is full of grace and truth, and Jesus is, is grace personified. And so it, it's amazing that when we pursue grace to the end, we end up at Christ. Uh, we can pursue ourselves, pursue sin that leads us away from God. And, uh, and, and the thing about sin is, is that uh, as we repent, we get to experience anew and refresh his grace once again. And so if we don't repent, if we minimize our sin, we kind of miss his grace. And there's kind of this fear amongst uh, people of God's grace, um, which kind of convinces me that we just don't understand his grace. And at some level, most of us kind of want these hard, fast rules. We just want a little box that we're supposed to live within. And somewhere we think we need just kind of a little law and just to keep people in control. Um, not you, but other people, right? Because um, you don't really need it, but everyone else does. And so um, we kind of have this fear of God and his grace. And if we go too far, here's where we end up, worshiping him. And, uh, and that's what I love. And so I just want to encourage you to be looking for God's grace in your life. Our God is above all things. He's not controlled by time. He's not bound by time. He's the great I am, and he's always interceding. He's always stepping into uh, our lives. And these turning points in our lives are kind of very subtle. And Jesus really lived his life on earth as a man, believing that his father was actually handling all the situations that he had to deal with and uh, everything that he had to face, everything that was going on in his world. He believed his father was handling him, and we can believe the same thing. Uh, God is moving. And so listen for that gentle voice. Uh, look for that little um, kind of prompting of God's spirit. And, and I just want to kind of start with that because I, I want to begin with the end in mind, if you will. And last night I spoke downtown, and at the end of the message I was really prompted to... Um, to uh, get up and share this, this verse, and I didn't do it. And so, um, and then the service ended, and I went away. I didn't think a lot about it until the middle of the night. I didn't sleep a lot last night, not just because of this, but for lots of reasons. And, uh, and God just prompted me about that. And so I just freely admit, by not sharing this, that was sin, okay? And by freely admitting that to God this morning, I was just celebrating in the middle of the night with the moon and up in the sky and God and I and miserable but joyous about his grace and uh, and so the verse though I want to share because it, it's so relevant to us in this message today I just want you to kind of walk away with this and it's it's Romans chapter 6 verse 11 and it says this even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus 
Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, okay? And, and, and we're going to look at Romans, and, and the thing about this book that Paul writes is he, he lays out over these first five chapters kind of about sin and separation from God and how Jesus Christ came and he paid the price and allows us to get back into this relationship with God, and it's through grace, by faith. It's an amazing thing. And then he gets to chapter 6, and Paul's writing this thing, and the very first, very first, first thing in the whole book of Romans that he asks you to do something, the very first time, the first thing he asks you to do is this. Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Ponder that. Keep that before you. Remember that. Moment by moment, renew your mind to that truth. You are dead to sin. You are alive to Christ. So if you leave today and that's all you can remember is you're dead to sin, then I'll feel uh, blessed because that's really what I'm, I want us to walk away with. That's really what I'm walking away with, and I hope I can continue to remember that. Uh, the title of this message is Wanted Dead and Alive. Dead and Alive, okay? Um, and, and, uh, and those two things go together, not so often in our world, but they really do in our spiritual lives. And we're looking at the life of Esther, and we're looking at the book of Esther, and it's been really kind of a fun adventure. And if you remember, uh, if you have your Bibles, you, we're going to come back to Romans 6, so you can keep a finger there or put a, a bookmark there, but we're going back to the book of Esther. And if you remember kind of our story, um, it, it's, it's like this incredible story. Uh, the, the, the empire at the time where Ahasuerus or Xerxes was the king was the largest empire, one of the largest empires in the world. And it included Turkey and Iraq and Iran and Pakistan and Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, parts of Egypt, Sudan, Libya, Assyria, Arabia, not Assyria. But it was like 127 provinces, okay, massive kingdom. And so this king, 485 B.C., when he took power, Ahasuerus or Xerxes, uh, same king, he uh, was one of the most powerful men on earth. And he dominated this kingdom. And what he said went. And during the time of Esther, um, the Jews were in exile. Jerusalem had fallen about 100 years before. The Jewish people were dispersed across the world, many of them here. And God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, but God's fingerprints are all over it, as we've seen over and over and over. It's amazing to see God moving. And I just want to encourage you that about that in your lives. As you may not think that God is moving, you may not see him moving, but he is moving in your lives. He is sovereign. He is in control. It's amazing what he's doing. And God has not forgotten his chosen people. And so if you remember the story, um, just try and kind of set it as a little background. Um, Ahasuerus is the king. Um, Vashti was the queen. She disobeys him. So he looks for another queen. He chooses Esther. Esther is raised by Mordecai. Um, he's Jewish. Mordecai is. Um, the top guy in the kingdom is Haman. Haman's this uh, wicked guy, and uh, he hates the Jews. His ancestry hated the Jews. He goes all the way back to the line of Esau, and, and through history, they've hated God's chosen people. So Haman is this guy who's just against the people of God, and Haman is the top guy in the kingdom, okay? And Mordecai, who's raised in Esther, is outside the palace. Haman is in the palace with the king, and he has the king's ear. And Haman, ultimately... Um, plots against the Jews because he hates Mordecai and he hates the Jews and he gets the king to issue this plan to annihilate all the Jewish people to wipe them all out and he wants to kill them all and he doesn't know that Esther the queen is Jewish she hadn't revealed that yet but uh, she would be part of that 
And we looked at just the time as this a few weeks ago where um, uh, Mordecai encouraged Esther to go before the king, said, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. And so Esther goes before the king and really uh, takes her own life in her hands and says, if I perish... I perish. Um, ultimately, as the story goes, we see that um, Esther and Mordecai rescue the people. But uh, basically what happens is Esther comes before the king. She plans this banquet and invites Haman, and she's going to tell the king what's going on. The king and God just kind of delays it another day, and so she waits. And as she's waiting for this day, the king... Um, is saying, Esther, what do you want? And, and she says, I want you to come back another day tomorrow for a banquet with me. And Haman goes home, builds a gallows. Actually, it was a, a stake, a pole in those days, 75 foot high. They would impale their victims. And he decided that what he wanted to do was kill Mordecai. So he's building this thing. And, um, and uh, if Esther knew what was going on, she'd be freaking out. I waited another day. Now Mordecai's going to be killed, okay? And so... But what happens is God, as God does, wakes up the king in the middle of the night. He has this dream, and he remembers that Mordecai had saved his life as he's reading back through the history of the kingdom, and that had happened five years before, and it just so happened at that time, imagine that, that God brought that to mind. So, of course, the next day, Haman comes rolling in, and, God's like, and, and the king, not God, the king, is like, what would you do to honor someone that, you want, that the king should honor? And, of course, Haman's proud. He's arrogant. He's all about himself. He has thought about this many times, and he says, I would just have hit one of his servants, lead the, the, the guy you want to honor around in a horse with a crown and, and put the king's robes on him and say, this is uh, what we do to those that the king wants to honor. So Haman's thinking it's him, and, and uh, the king says, no, 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 I want you to do that for Mordecai. So Haman does that, right? And uh, Haman's totally humiliated, totally humiliated his enemy that he hates, that he got this decree passed because he hated Mordecai so much to kill all of Mordecai's people, to annihilate all the Jews. He has to lead him around and honor him before the people. And uh, he's totally humiliated. And he goes home and his wife's like, basically like wives do, it's like, you're in trouble, buddy. I mean, that's not really what it says, but that's what I would say. Uh, she said, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him. You will surely fall before him. And, and so that's kind of where we pick up our story. And uh, we pick it up in Esther chapter 7. Now, if, if you want to put up the slide, I want you to look at this. We're looking at this not only as historical, but also as an allegory. And today, I think we have a really cool picture of allowing uh, God to bring this allegory from 485 B.C., kind of up to the time of Paul, kind of all the way up to right now in our, in our lives, every single one of our lives. But our allegory, Ian Thomas' uh, uh, allegory, it's a lot of people's, but, but basically the king represents uh, your soul. The king represents your soul. Your mind, how you think, Right? your will, how you choose, and your emotions, how you feel. So the king represents your soul. And of course, the king in the palace makes these decisions, and what happens, that impacts the whole kingdom, and the kingdom represents your body, 
as you make decisions, as you make choices, whether you're following your feeling or your thoughts, as you make those choices, that impacts how you live. Um, Haman, we'll talk about him in a minute, but he represents the flesh. Mordecai represents the Holy Spirit, and Esther represents the human spirit, ultimately under the control of the Holy Spirit. So just keep that in mind as you kind of look at the historical story during the book of Esther and, and think about these kind of allegorical truths, this picture that gives us kind of a, a picture behind the picture and makes it kind of come alive. Today we're going to really develop this character of Haman a little further. And instead of just looking at him as your flesh, as that, that selfish part of you, uh, hi honey, <laughs> Uh, that selfish part of you, that, that, um, that part that's trying to get all your needs met on your own. Um, we're going to look at Haman kind of beyond the flesh to kind of the root of the flesh and your sin nature. Uh, we're sinners because by nature we're sinful, right? We sin because by nature we're sinful. Uh, that's what we inherited from our great, 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 great Adam and Eve ancestors, right? And Haman is not part righteous, part sinful. He's total, totally sinful, just like our nature was. Uh, there was not the slightest potential really within ourselves to save ourselves and to please God apart from Jesus Christ coming. Okay, so that's kind of the picture. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, what happens in, in chapter 7 of the book of Esther, the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther. This is the second, the second banquet, right? And the very first thing I want you to know, like we started, is you're dead to sin, okay? You're dead to sin. You're dead to sin. So the king and Haman come to drink wine with Esther. Uh, the king says to Esther on the second day, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what's your petition, Queen Esther? It's going to be granted to you, and what is your request? Even if it's up to half your kingdom, it's going to be done for you. And the queen answered, and she said, well, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have had remained silence, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to you, king. And the king said to Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who would presume to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, it is Haman. Remember, it's just the king, queen, and Haman there. It is Haman. And Haman became terrified before the king and queen, you think? Uh, Father, we come to you and we just, uh, just ask even now that you would just speak to us. By the power of your spirit, I pray that you would just... Just get me out of the way and the distractions out of the way. And, and you know, I just, I have no strength but you have all strength and so I pray that you would be the one who gets glory you would be the one who we leave thinking about that you would just intercede in our lives and you would change us and let us know the truth about Jesus Christ and how awesome you are amen so the king right he probably hadn't really given a lot of thought to what had happened uh, lots of times he's issuing decrees and he thought he was probably just dealing with the situation that needed to be solved in his kingdom. These, these nasty Jews needed to be wiped off the earth is what Haman basically portrayed to him because they didn't bow to the king and they didn't keep his laws. And so he just thought he solved his problem. And, and, and I just want to encourage you that, that God breaks in and changes any situation. He can do it 
with kings or presidents. He can do it with bosses or spouses or kids. God's moving. And, and it just so happened that he remembered, uh, the king remembered something that happened five years ago. And Mordecai had saved the king. And it was time now to honor him. And all of a sudden, Esther points out that Haman is the one who wanted to annihilate her and all of her people. And in verse 7, the king arose in his anger from drinking wine, and he went into the palace garden, and Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Not a great day for Haman. And when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in this house? And as word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And Harbanah, one of the king's eunuchs, who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, there's a gallows standing in Haman's house, 50 cubits high, 75 feet, which Haman made for Mordecai who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him on it. Hang him on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. God is so cool. He is sovereign. These gallows were being built by Haman. He thought to kill Mordecai. But God was in control. And God is always in control, and he's kind of always moving. And we don't need to know why God does what he does. We simply need to know him. Haman, you don't need to feel sorry for him. He's only fit for the gallows. You know, in the Old Testament, and, and so often it was more stark then. You can kind of read the stories of the wars, and you can read the battles, and you think, oh, man, this is, this is kind of nasty. But really, the battles to them were battles between their gods, and they had regional gods, and they had regional battles, and the Philistines' god was Dagon, and the Amorites' god was Moloch and Milcom, and the Canaanites' god was Baal, and the Sidonians' god was Asheroth, and the Moabites' god was Chemosh. And so basically, as they were having these battles, whoever would win the battle, that would tell them in their minds that their gods were the most powerful. And so if they were fighting against the Jews... The people of Israel, they were saying that their God, for example, Chemosh, was more powerful than the Lord if they defeated Israel and vice versa. And, and we, we don't have that stark of thing in our world, but we have very similar battles and personal battles and regional battles and, and family battles, and we battle with these false gods all the time. We talk about it a lot in here. But, you know, whether your God is, is your finances or money or security or, or your, the government is your God and, and there's this battle with the government or your career or your knowledge or your health or your kids or your religion, there's always these battles going on. Who's going to be king of your life? Who's going to be lord of your life? Okay? Who's going to be the one who gives you security? Who's going to be the one who gives you comfort? And so Haman comes along and he represents the flesh and the power behind the flesh, the nature of sin. He represents self, unredeemed self. And he's totally against the things of Almighty God. And Haman is exposed. And when the flesh is exposed, it whines and screams and threatens and argues and... and it hates to be exposed. That part of you that's so selfish. You don't, you don't, none of us like to be pointed out by others when we're selfish. 
None of us like that, okay? And we don't like that to be exposed, our weaknesses, our flesh, our patterns, our lusts, the things we crave, the things we're trying to get worth from apart from God. And, and, and yet there's only one thing you can do with the flesh. It has to be killed. It has to be killed. So Ahasuerus, Xerxes the king, chooses to have Haman killed. Now, now just catch that picture for a minute. The soul chooses to have the sin nature of the flesh killed. Guess what now? Haman no longer has impact over the king, over the kingdom. The wrong man has been in charge, influencing the king. And that's exactly what happens when we come to know Christ as our Savior. That's what happens at conversion. God does it by grace. He sets you free. You are redeemed. As Tom and I talked about this message at the beginning of the week, and we're going to sing that song, you're redeemed, you're set free. And so just catch that picture. Haman is dead. The one who had influenced the king is on the gallows. He's killed. Okay? Now flip back to Romans chapter 6. And remember the first five chapters are about how to get right with God. And it's by grace we're saved through faith. And then all of a sudden Romans chapter 6, Paul kind of changes a little bit. And he says, what shall we say then? Romans 6.1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, this is kind of hard for us to understand at times because we look at the Bible from our perspective and our grid and we think we know everything. Um, we're used to kind of thinking for ourselves, right, rather than looking at the Bible from God's perspective. But what God says is that you died when you came to Christ. How can that be? Right? Physically, obviously, you didn't die. Your body's still sitting here. Your soul didn't die. You still think, right? You still feel. You still make choices. Your spirit, your human spirit didn't die, okay? But you were under the control of the flesh. You were by nature children of wrath because of sin. And Paul tells us that in Ephesians um, chapter 2 in there. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the power of this air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh. You, in you indulged the desires of the flesh. And you were by nature children of wrath. Okay? But what happened was the old man, not a gender term, could say old woman. Okay? It's easier to say old man, right? But the old man died. The old man was crucified with Christ at the cross. Now, we have a hard time with this, but I tell you what, if you can walk out of here and, and hold on to that this week, it'll change your life. Romans 6, 2 can change your life. Honestly, it can change your life. Because when the Holy Spirit comes in, you're made completely new. There's a new person in charge. You're dead to sin. You're dead to sin by grace. And Paul's saying, shall we continue to practice sin, right? Like you're practicing your golf swing? May it never be. Why? Because you, Christian, are dead to sin. And it's in the aorist tense. It refers to a single action that has been completed in the past. 
It's not that you're dying to sin. Okay? It's not that you have died and are continuing to die to sin. It's not that we shall die to sin. It is finished. Christ died once and for all. He paid the price. Paul's not saying you ought to die. You have died. The starting point is what God says, not what you think. Okay? Nobody can crucify himself. God's work. This is God's work. This is about God doing it. Verse 10 even says the death that, that Christ died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God, okay? So you want to know how God gives you power over sin? How you can live a holy life? How you can allow Christ to live through you? Your old self died. I don't know how many times I get to say that, and I don't know if I can say it enough for us to get that, but you cannot continually live in sin anymore as a believer. You can commit sins, believe me, I know, but you don't remain in this constant state of sinfulness like before. See, before conversion, you were under the influence of sin. That's all you had. All the king had was Haman to listen to, right? But after conversion, you're in Christ. The old self died. You were a sinner. You deserved to die. You did die. And you received what you deserved in your substitute, Jesus Christ. And you became one with him. Your old life is finished. It's done. Your new life has begun in God. Haman is dead. He's dead, okay? Mordecai's moving in the palace. Well, look at that. So the king now can be influenced by Mordecai, represented by the Holy Spirit. And you may think, but I still sin. Really? Yes, you do. And yes, I do. Because we still live in a fallen world. We still have the patterns of our flesh that we can never improve, that we can never perfect. We're always going to be selfish in and of ourselves. And we will sin until we go to be with Christ. But we are separated from the controlling power of sin in our lives. We have a choice not to sin. And that's what we're going to really look at next week. You see, catch this. Haman is dead, but his decree to kill the Jews is still in effect. Still in effect. Okay? Our old sin nature is dead, and, and there'll be debate amongst theologians about that. That's fine, okay? But our old sin nature is dead. I don't know how I came up with that, except for verse after verse says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? <laughs> you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's not my idea. That's Colossians 3.3, right? Your old self died. You were a sinner. You now have life. You still have the patterns of the flesh that have influenced your thinking and your choices and your actions for years and years and years. And for some, as deeply ingrained. Your soul didn't die, your body didn't die, but that old man is dead and gone. And if you can just celebrate that, it'll change your life. Verse 3 goes on in Romans chapter 6. Don't you know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of Christ's resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with Christ our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. 
you think he's trying to get something across to us? Right? You died. Your old man is dead. Baptism represents identification. We got to celebrate that last week with water baptism. It's, it's like this picture, this shadow of the spiritual baptism, this spiritual immersion of believers into Christ through the Holy Spirit. And it's like you, you drive through a neighborhood and you see this old rundown house with this family that lives in it. And the next thing you drive through there and you find out the house has been sold and a new family moves in. It still looks the same, but everything's changed inside. That's really what's happened with us. That old self really refers to something that's completely worn out, completely useless. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God is how Paul says it in the book of Colossians. He even goes on in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. He says, quit lying to each other. Since you laid aside your old self with its evil practices, you've put on your new self who is being renewed in the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You're dead. One of my old favorite verses, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Did you catch that? I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Crucifixion does not simply mean extreme suffering. It produces death. To be crucified is to die. We were designed for life in the Spirit, not in the flesh. We're designed to be dependent on Christ. And what's amazing is when we come to God through this relationship with Christ, we're set free. And he goes on in verse 6, he says, Know this, our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, done away with. And that word means to be rendered inoperative or invalid, to make something ineffective by removing its power, its control, to be made powerless, to render useless. Our old self is rendered useless. We were slaves to sin. Now we're free from the power of sin. We're not saying a Christian is no longer capable of sinning. We are, but we're no longer under a compulsion to sin. We do not have to obey sin. We have a new power that we can obey. Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, lives within us. The old man ceased to exist. The new man lives temporarily in the same old body, the same old earth suit, right? We have the same mind. We just have to renew it to the truth. And we're in the same, we look the same as the old man <laughs> used to. Uh, but the person inside is new. And even though we live in these unredeemed bodies, we still deal with sin. We're new. Augustine said it before the fall, we were able to sin. Obviously, Adam and Eve, before they ever sinned, were able to sin. After the fall, they were not able not to sin. You see, uh, the only way to overcome sin is through Jesus Christ. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, you can't overcome sin. As believers, we're able not to sin. We're free. We're dead to sin. The old man is dead and gone. Got it? You've been released from sin's dominion. There's no more condemnation for you. There's no more shame. There's no more false guilt. You're not a sinner. You're not a loser. You're not a failure. You're not a disappointment. You are a child of God. Amen. I mean, it's amazing. You're alive to God. And he goes on in verse 8. And Paul says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has master over him. And are you in Christ? Yes, which means death no longer has mastery over you. 
For the death he died, verse 10, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. You see, because we died and been raised with Christ, we will never die again. We have eternal life. And the sin that leads to death no longer has mastery over us, believers. Christ took the penalty for sin. He met sin's demands. The wages of sin is death. He did it. He broke the power of sin. And not only that, but he rose from the grave to give you life. And it's amazing. You have to know that you're new. You have to know what God has done. It sets you free. We still sin. We experience sin, but we've died to it. And that's what God says is true. And that's where we end, where we began. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul in the book of Romans, the very first thing he wants you to do, the first time you're called to do anything is this. Ponder, keep before you, consider, renew your mind, get this truth. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, in your, in your bulletin, there's a little yellow sheet that kind of talks about your identity and if the musicians would come up we're going to celebrate this in a, in a very practical way that Christians have celebrated this truth uh, for over 2,000 years but understand you're God's child understand you've been justified understand you're a saint understand you're redeemed and you're forgiven of all your sins understand you're complete in Christ understand you're free from condemnation Others understand you're hidden with Christ in God. Understand you're a citizen of heaven. Understand you're born of God and the evil one cannot touch you. Understand that you've been chosen. Understand that you're God's temple. Understand that you're God's co-worker. Understand that you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. Understand that you are God's workmanship and you can do all things through Christ. You need to know that. And if the um, ushers would come forward, we're going to celebrate that by celebrating communion. And I'm going to ask that they would just pass out the elements and, and uh, Tom's going to lead us in a song, I Am Redeemed. As they pass them out, I want you just to let that sit. And then we'll corporately together take communion. But we invite you all to take communion if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've trusted him as your Savior, feel free to take it and just hold it and we'll celebrate together. Father, I pray right now as we come to this incredible privilege that we have, which we call celebrating communion, I pray for every person in this room that they would know, they would know that they would know that they would know that they are dead to sin, but they are alive through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father.